0: James learned it a different way. He's freelancing. And, and you know, was, it was good freelance, okay? It was good freelance. But he was freelance. All right, Luke chapter 10 today. We're going to diverge a little bit out of uh, Psalm 119 for today. Um, and as you can guess, it's Mother's Day, if you didn't know. And it, it doesn't. it's not really a Mother's Day sermon. You'll, you'll see. You'll see. And I want to say that if you've noticed Robert, he's looking svelter, is svelter a good term, more tanned, and you wonder, has he been to the beach? No, he's out running every day, pretty much every day, training for? The New York City Marathon, Marathon, okay? And you've already run four? Four, He's already won four in his life of those, and when is it? The first Sunday in November, and and, and so Robert, all this to say is, Robert's not going to come out and tell you, so I have to do it for him. Uh, he's running on a, um, uh, basically what's a, a charity. If he raises enough money for a charity, then he gets an entrance into the uh, New York City Marathon. So you'll hear more about it, but if you'd like to hear more about Robert's story and what it's like to run four marathons in New York, um, please talk to him, okay, and chase him down, all right? So... <laughs> There you go. Takes him down. That was a joke, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Luke chapter 10, if you're able, please stand with me as we dig into this portion. As we dig into this portion of God's word. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, that our eyes would be open to what you have for us. Not just so we'll see the words on the page but that those words will penetrate into our hearts and change our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. This is God's inspired word for us today. so please be seated. Now the origins of Mother's Day, if, and this is easily found, I'll just give it to you here, date back to date back to the 19th century, Anne Reeve Jarvis of West Virginia helped to start Mother's Day work clubs to teach local women how to care for, for their children. These clubs later became a force of unification in a region of the country that was still divided over that war of northern aggression. Uh, In 1868, Jarvis organized Mother's Friendships Day at which mothers gathered with former Union and Confederate soldiers to promote uh, reconciliation. The official Mother's Day arose out of the 1900s as a result of her daughter, Ann Jarvis, uh, following her mother's death. Ann Jarvis conceived of Mother's Day as a way of honoring her plus all other mothers. And it gained financial backing from a department store owner, uh, Wanamaker. Anybody heard of Wanamaker's? Okay. Uh, he saw that a dollar could be made in honoring mothers. So he was all about it. Uh, so in 1908, he organized the first official Mother's Day celebration. It was at a Methodist church, but it's okay. Uh, Methodist church in Grafton, West Virginia. And following that success, uh, Jarvis resolved to see the holiday go nationwide. So she started writing letters and, and doing all those things. And it was finally uh, in 1914 Woodrow Wilson signed the measure officially, officially establishing the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Now, wanna maker had it right. Um, an average of $163 will be spent on moms this Mother's Day. So some of you gotta gotta get more going, okay? So I gotta make up for that. Now, now, that's that's just the purely secular roots of it. Let me give you a little bit better biblical perspective. On what we're talking about. And I'm taking this from a, uh, an article that Dr. Sinclair Ferguson wrote uh, a few years ago. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson is a, uh, a great Scottish uh, pastor and theologian. I've heard him speak of many times. Um, and he's just beyond his beautiful speech. You know, for those of you who've been to Scotland, you, you know what it's like to hear beautiful English spoken with a Scottish accent and then that other stuff that you cannot understand what they're talking about. I can remember getting directions and going, okay, I'm going to find somebody else, okay? (laughs) Uh, You know, Ferguson just speaks and the words are just lovely, just lovely. So he writes about Mother's Day. He says, Although it goes largely unrecognized, the celebration of Mother's Day depends on a number of important biblical convictions. For one thing, it implies that motherhood is a high calling and worthy of special honor far from the view that it is a major obstacle to women's progress in what really matters in life. It is also a constant reminder to us that God made man, male and female, in his image, and that the complementary differences run deeply into the fabric of our being. It also stresses the privilege of rearing children because it anticipates and actually seems to assume the mother's love, devotion, and expression of appreciation for their mothers by the children. Much of this we owe to the Christian gospel. And it should not surprise us, therefore, that when a society has been transformed by the by the gospel, but then rejects it, respect and honor of mothers will begin to disappear. And the prospect of being a mother and rearing children will be seen as a burden and an obstacle to personal satisfaction. So all of us understand that to be a mother... No, I mean, I don't understand everything, but uh, I've seen it lived out clearly in my household. All of those, uh, I, all of us understand that at least for a season to be a mother, you give up your free time, certainly, uh, you give up uh, a lot of your privacy. Uh, is, is there any mother who has not seen the little fingers reaching under the bathroom door, you know, when you go in there? Or the knock say, it's an emergency, mom. And, and is the house on fire? No, no. Is, is there a stranger in the house? No. What's the emergency? Well, it's just an emergency, mom. <laughs> but you also get all those gooby kisses, okay, and you enjoy the smell that only infants have, okay? And only infants have that smell. Well, I thought about these things, and I thought uh, that I'd go to somebody who, whose mother you may not know uh, as we prepare to, to study this portion of the word, and it's the early church father, Augustine, Augustine, and uh, he was probably the greatest theologian in the first thousand years of the church. He was from North Africa, and his mother was a lifelong believer. Augustine was not. Augustine came to Christ later in life and largely due to the influence of his mother. Uh, She had prayed for him during his youth and all of his, uh, we would call it sowing his his wild uh, oats, uh, so to speak. She prayed many years for his salvation, prayed many years for uh, her husband's salvation, and he came to Christ later in life as well, before his death. Now, Augustine's view of his mother is this. "'In the flesh she brought me to birth in this world,' In her heart she brought me to birth in your eternal light. It is not of her gifts that I shall speak, but of the gifts you gave her, for she was neither her own maker nor her own teacher. It was you who made her, and neither her father nor her mother knew what kind of woman their daughter would grow up to be. It was by Christ's teaching, by the guidance of your only son, that she was brought up to honor and obey you in one of those good Christian families which form the body of Christ." So that was his view of her, and we'll get a little bit more later. But take take this passage in Luke, and you might look at it and go, well, you know, ran... I've heard this passage at this time of year before and is this going to be another oh, Martha's busy and and that she's not doing the right thing and and all of that and and um, well you know Rand you really don't understand because if I don't do the laundry and if I don't cook the dinner if I don't do this and this then it's not going to get done and the kids won't have lunch tomorrow and and you know by the end of the day if I'm not too tired I might get a little bit of private time with the Lord for my own devotions Well. It's important for us to understand that yes, this passage talks about Mary and Martha, and they are actual people. This is not a, 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 a allegory. Thank you, thank you. It's not an allegory or anything like that. These are two actual people, uh, two actual sisters, and their brother was Lazarus. The choir is sharp today. I tell you what. Tell you. Um, uh, but really, the passage is about you and me. And the passage is about discipleship, and it's about our discipleship uh, and our relationship with Christ and what is the most important thing for us. It applies to you and me, it's about discipleship. So, first of all, who can be a disciple? Let's look at this um, verse 39. And she had a sister called Mary who moreover was listening to the Lord's words seated at his feet. Now it is hard if not impossible for we who are in this sanctuary at this moment to understand the shock of that verse. Now the, the best way to understand that, if you were in this culture today would be if you were a Muslim woman. Okay? If you were a Muslim woman, you would have a, a very good understanding of how shocking this verse was uh, and how this verse is. Out of the millions of Muslim women that exist in the world, not one has ever heard a word addressed directly to them as a disciple of the Islamic faith from the Quran. It is always addressed to the men or addressed to their husbands. It goes basically like this. Um, if the Quran has something to say to women, it asks the men or the husbands to go tell the women to do this. Uh, or, or men, do this with your wives. Or men, do this with the ladies. It never says believers, do this with your spouses. Wives, do this with your husbands. It never says that. It is only addressed to men. And this is one of the reasons over the last 50 years that Muslim women come to Christ at a much higher rate than Muslim men do. Okay, That's just a, a statistic out there for us. They see how Jesus treats women. They, they look at passages like this and they're shocked at this, uh, that Jesus values men and women at the same level. Now let's look at it from a historic context Uh, of the culture surrounding uh, Jesus in the first century. Now, in ancient Greece, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless there was a trustworthy male escort to go with her. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in a husband's house. Um, Now, some of us grew up in, in areas where if you went somewhere, what, the men would congregate over here, and the women would congregate over here. and it was, But it wasn't a religious segregation. It was a self-selection, self-selection segregation. Um, men would go over and talk about... Um, I was with the kids, so I don't know. I don't know what the men would talk about and what the ladies would talk about. Well, we see this. But in Greek culture, it was specifically and purposely separated like that. Men kept their wives under lock and key. Women had the social status, basically, of slaves in the ancient Greek world. Girls were not allowed to go to school, and when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. They were basically the property of their fathers or the property of their husbands. The status of Roman women was pretty much the same. Roman law placed a wife under the absolute control of her husband, as were the children as well. Remember in ancient Rome, if a child was born and the dad looked at the baby and said, Nah, don't like him, they put him outside the door to die. And along comes Christians who really became the first adoption agency and began to collect these children who were discarded. Um, uh, The husband had ownership of all the wives' possessions, and husband had the power of life and death over her and her children as well. Now you get to the first century Jewish world in which Jesus and, and and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. And it had been radically altered, in the first century world, had been radically altered from the Old Testament world and the Old Testament teachings. Um, in earlier times in the Old Testament, women participated in pretty much every aspect of community life, except they could not serve in the temple. Okay, that was restricted to only the Levitical priests. Women were not limited in private roles in the Old Testament. Several exercised roles of leadership. Uh, we see Miriam leading women in worship in Exodus. We see Deborah as a judge and a prophetess in Judges. We see Huldah was a prophetess whom King Josiah went and consulted instead of the contemporary Jeremiah in 2 Kings. But by the time Christ comes along, there has been this, this uh change in the structure, in the cultural structure of the Jewish world, which has much more limited and constrained uh, the role of women in the world. The concept of zenya, which is not the right way to say it, but it's the best I can do, which is the private role of women, was based on a an errant teaching out of Psalm 45, the verse 13, it says, All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. See, that was the prominent view of, of how women should be in the first century of Jesus' time. Stashed away, not out in public. Uh, a man's primary responsibility was public life. A woman's primary responsibility was private life the family sphere. Women were not allowed to testify in court. Uh, get you out of jury duty, you know, if that was the way it was. Uh, in effect, now the other people who were not allowed to testify in court, ladies, you'll, you won't you will appreciate this, but you, you'll see how bad the situation was. Others who could not testify in court, Gentiles, minors, deaf mutes, and undesirables such as gamblers, the insane, usurers, and pigeon racers. <laughs> so I, I would not suggest, husbands, that you call your wife a pigeon racer today, okay? That would not be good, not very good. But by publicly including women in his ministry, Jesus really shattered those prejudicial views uh, of, of his day. In the Mosaic Law, there was nothing that prevented men and women from conversing with one another. Yet, in the society of Jesus' day, which was run by the rabbinical teachings that had um, evolved and formed out of, that had been added to the things of the Old Testament, it was strikingly different. Strikingly different. So Jesus shattered those societal norms by offering his teachings to anybody. I mean, yes, it's the feeding of the five thousand. Who were the five thousand? Those were the men. But it is assumed from culture that you've got everybody else there as well. So the invitation to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to everybody. We never look at an individual and say, eh, they're not worth the gospel. Okay? We approach everybody that we're going to share the gospel with as if when they hear it from our lips, the Lord will use that to change their hearts and they will be forever changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. So one closest, some of the closest friends of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they entertained him in the home. And Martha assumes the traditional role, and she's out there uh, preparing a meal for the guests, and her sister Mary did only what men would do. Only what men would do. Learn from Jesus' teachings. So that's what you, you immediately see. This is is not the norm here. This is not the norm of the first century. Uh, Mary was basically a cultural deviant, but so was Jesus. Because both violated the rabbinical law of the day. She went and sat at his feet and he had the goal to teach her. Okay, He had the goal to teach her. To think that a woman could understand the things of the gospel. Shocking. Shocking. How many of you ladies understand the things of the gospel? Yes, all of you. Okay, all of you. Not all the things of the gospel, but the only thing that holds you back from understanding anybody, anybody who hears these things, the only thing that holds you back is the time that you have, your willingness to devote to study. Okay? There is nothing within our culture that says, that, that holds anybody back. If you want to know the things of the gospel, if you want to study these things, I, I've got eight, nine hundred books in my office. Come and get some okay I know you're gonna go uh Rand that that book's this thick and it's two columns with small print yeah but it's so good okay and you'll grow so much if you read it and the only thing that's stopping you is I don't have the magnification glasses long, large enough to read those little bitty words okay but the gospel goes out to anybody who wants to learn anybody but that's different in the first century um they, they were violating the rabbinical law, and the rabbinical law said, let the words of the law be burned rather than taught to a woman. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it's as though he taught her lechery. Crazy. Crazy. And I, I, don't want, you, I want you to understand, this is not a teacher. This is the teacher. This is the teacher communicating and discipling, communicating to and discipling Mary and many other women in his circle, welcoming them that they can feast on the word of God. Nothing was there to hold them back. Jesus said, I don't really care about culture. This is more important. The things of the gospel are more important. So look at Mary's posture here. Where is she? Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who, moreover, was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. Now, that is just not her. That's everybody in the room. Now, uh, you'll notice that uh, I don't sit down to preach. Have you ever seen anybody who is not physically disabled sit down and teach or preach? That is not the norm in our society. The only person I've ever seen was Johnny Erickson Tata, who obviously could not stand up. Um, Everybody else stands up to teach in our world, in our culture. Everybody stands up to preach. In the first century, they sat down. The teacher would sit in a chair or sit uh, outside somewhere, and everybody else would not stand up, but everybody else would sit at their feet. Hence the phrase, to sit at the feet of so-and-so. That means to learn from them, to to, uh, sit and be a disciple of them. That's what a disciple does. A disciple is devoted to the authority of and sits under the teaching of Jesus Christ. A disciple acknowledges the the authority of the Lord. Acknowledges the weight and the power of his teaching. A disciple is not coming to Jesus trying to tell him what to do, telling try him what is right. Well Jesus, have you tried this? Maybe you're not reaching enough of an audience because you don't have the right marketing scheme. Maybe if your message was this, maybe if your message was that. No, a disciple comes to Christ and says, I'm here to learn from you. I'm here to hear what you have to say. A disciple has his mouth closed, his ears open to every word that comes from the Savior. Uh, A disciple is in love with the, the Savior's opinions, not the opinions of the world. I mean, we like The opinions of the world we like our own opinions we like to worship uh, according to our tastes we like the christian life to be in in order with our expectations uh, and preferences we like the word of god to conform to our understandings but here the evidence is clear that a disciple who is devoted to the authority of christ says jesus has the final word on whatever he speaks to if he speaks to it that's gospel truth His disciples long to be where he is speaking. They long to hear his word. They long to be edified by what he has to say. They long to worship him as he sees fit. The word of God is the food that the disciple of Christ eats. It is the water that we drink. It is the water of life for which we will never thirst again. Disciples of Jesus have to have his teaching. They have to have his word. So let's look at the last couple verses here. The priority of discipleship, the priority of discipleship, verses 40 through 42. Now Jesus descends upon the house with um, untold numbers. There was probably a crowd that was following him. They come to Mary and Martha's house. There's a lot going on. Mary Martha sees all these things, tries to get everything together, looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, Mary's just sitting there. Make her come and help me. And Jesus does not give a... This is not a real rebuke. This is just a statement. It's not like he's waving his finger at Martha here. He just says, Martha, you're worried and bothered about many things, but only a few things are necessary. Okay? Only a few things are necessary. Really, only one. Really, only one thing is necessary. Now, the priority of discipleship we each have a temptation that is listed here in martha's world and in martha's culture the temptation of busyness because there are a lot of things to do in our world there are a lot of things we can be about but do those things are those things necessary do they help us in the necessity of the one thing the most important things. I mean, we are in a culture that is subject to this type of temptation. It's the busiest culture in the world. You think, really, Rand, is it the busiest culture in the world? And I'm not saying that just because I think my, my you know, 80 years here in this world are the most important 80 years and the only thing that matter. When you look at culture uh, in, in the past times, things come to us at much greater speeds than they used to. I mean, we've looked at this before. You expect people to be videotaping catastrophes on their videotaping. There we go. Um, Having their phone out and showing, you know, uh, taking videos of that. Uh, You expect things to happen now. You want to know now. You're constantly bombarded by busyness. Um, And you know what? Most of our busyness is often superficial busyness. It's not productive busyness. It is... Oh, man, let me check the news today. Let me check this. Let me check my Facebook. Let me check my email. What's going on? And are those things necessary? Well, they're, they help in certain ways, but are they necessary? That's the question that we have to ask because Jesus says only a few things are necessary. Really, only one. Really, only one is necessary. The busyness is an enemy of discipleship. Because it keeps our eyes focused on a multitude of things that are less than necessary in life. It takes us away from what is most important. So Jesus says to Martha, Martha, in the middle of all these things that you have to do, don't forget the most important. Don't forget what is necessary to do. And he says the same thing to every one of his disciples. I mean, if there was ever a time in our history where we needed a Sabbath. Okay, now understand the Sabbath is, is created for what? For man, not man for the Sabbath. It is given to us so that we can find rest. It is given to us so that we might worship the Lord and find rest for our souls on that day. We're expected to, to produce the rest of the week. But when it comes to the Sabbath, that's the day that you find rest. So you have to ask yourself how it is that you find rest on the Sabbath. Now, when uh, somebody gets ordained as a pastor, we have, to, um, we have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, you're allowed to take an exception, and many people like myself took an exception to the Sabbath. And, and the way that the Sabbath is written in Westminster is you shall worship and do works of uh, compassion and ministry on the Sabbath. Well, uh, walking the dog is, is compassion to him, but it's not necessarily a compassion to the, the body of Christ or a work for the body of Christ. Uh, planting shrubs might be restful for me, but that is not a work of ministry or care. Uh, so you, I, t- I took an exception to that because I didn't want somebody who's pickier than me to come along and say, Randy, you know, cutting the grass is not ministry. I was like, well it gives me rest okay so what gives you rest okay now recreation might give you rest um uh naps naps are good uh okay but it is assumed you will worship the lord and then you will find rest and, and man in our society where we are just going and going and going there needs to be a time where there is silence There needs to be a time where there is rest, when there is nothing else going on. And we don't necessarily like that all that much until you experience it and know the richness of quietness. The richness of not thinking, i got eight things to do, uh, okay, but I'm going to rest. And your mind's running and and all these pictures are running in your minds of the things to do. No, just to rest before the Lord. Okay? Uh, and that's what he's saying here. We need some rest. And, and, and we cannot forget the most important thing. So let me return back to the writings of Augustine, the early church father. He records the last conversation he ever had with his mother. He was 33 years old. She was 56. This was two weeks before she passed away. She, she wasn't sick at this time. She had no understanding that she was going to pass away within two weeks. Augustine says that they got together... And they dwelt in a long conversation about the blessedness of the life of the saints, not knowing that she would shortly be there with the saints. In God's providence, this is Augustine, in God's providence for we were talking alone together and our conversation was serene and joyful. We had forgotten what we had left behind and we were intent on what lay before us. We were wondering what the eternal life of the saints would be like that life which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart conceived, but we laid the lips of our hearts to the heavenly stream that flows from your fountain, the source of all life, which is in you, so that as far as it was in our power to do so, we might be sprinkled with its waters and in some sense reach an understanding of this great mystery of heaven. Our conversation led us to the conclusion that no bodily pleasure, however great it might be, and whatever earthly light might shed luster upon it, was worthy of comparison or even mention beside the happiness of the life of the saints who have gone before us. And then from Monica, who is his mother, Monica Augustine said, She looked at me and said, For three decades I have prayed that the Lord would make you a Christian, and you are a Christian now. This life has no more hold over me. This life has no more hold over me. Verse 42, there's one thing that's necessary. When the Lord of all creation, when the Son of God, who has given his life for us, shed his blood that we might know forgiveness, when he says to us, one thing is necessary for you, a disciple, I hope he has your attention. I hope he has your full attention. And that one thing is fellowship with him. That is what is necessary. We think of all the other things we have in life. We think of all the other things as a disciple of Christ that are there to take our eyes off him. The one necessary thing is that we would live in fellowship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we would not have picked this one thing as necessary if it was left to us. But you have made it clear that as a disciple of Christ, as one who claims the work of salvation in our lives, as one who claims the work of grace and mercy, it is necessary that we fellowship with Christ. The other things we can do Once we have done that. Once we have done what is necessary. Once we have been seated at the feet of Christ. Once we have closed our mouths and opened our ears and eyes to what he has to say. How we are to live. That we might walk in his path. That's what's necessary. That we might find rest in him. The one who loves us more than we can imagine. The one who has given his life for us. Fellowship with Christ. That is what is necessary. That is our meat and drink as believers. To live in Christ. To live in his word. Lord, don't let us spend another day thinking that our views are better than his. Let us spend the rest of our lives at his feet. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.